Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to the book of Isaiah. Tonight we are in Isaiah 23. As we've been going through Isaiah, and indeed as we've been going through any of the prophets, there are certain kingdoms, certain big Gentile nations that turn up regularly. And so we're used to hearing about Babylon. We're used to hearing about Egypt. We're used to hearing about Assyria. We're used to hearing about the Moabites. Tonight we're going to talk about Tyre and Sidon. And even though we're not as familiar generally with those names, they actually loom very large in the biblical record in both the Old and the New Testament. We're going to look at some of the history of Tyre and Sidon tonight. Tyre is a fortified city about a half a mile out into the Mediterranean. It's sitting on a rock. So it is a rock fortress. And many kings, many different armies through the years, have attempted to take down Sidon. And it seemed humanly impossible to do because not only were they stationed on a rock island, but they also strategically placed large rocks, large boulders, into the sea around them so that if you tried to attack them by ship, you couldn't get close enough to do them any damage without damaging your own ship. So they really had a fairly impregnable fortress built. And yet here in Isaiah 23, we're going to read a prophecy about the downfall of Tyre which was just an unthinkable thing. You know, back when Babylon was the chief ruling nation there in the Middle East, it seemed unthinkable that Babylon could fall. When Assyria had conquered the whole Middle East, it seemed unthinkable that Assyria could be taken down. And yet, one by one, God takes kingdoms down, builds other kingdoms back up, and sometimes in this life, in history, in the Bible, and even in our own lives today, sometimes the unthinkable happens. Sometimes the things that you just couldn't imagine, the things you never thought would ever happen, happen. Suddenly America chooses to destroy its economy and make everybody stay home for a disease we didn't see coming. And it was unthinkable a year ago. And so the question comes up in Isaiah 23, in the midst of talking about the fall of Tyre and Sidon, an absolutely unthinkable event. In the midst of it, Isaiah asks the question, who did this? Was it the armies that did it? Because like I said, several nations, several armies through the year had attacked Tyre, had tried it various different ways based on the various ways that they were attacked, they then created new defenses. 
And so they seemed impregnable. And yet, the prediction here is that they're going to fall. But who did it? God poses that question. Who did it? Is this man's ingenuity that does it? Or when the unthinkable happens in human history, is it still in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God? Well, God himself is going to say, it's me, I did it. Whenever you see the unthinkable, that's just me demonstrating that I'm doing it because you can't do it. I think we could extend that all the way out to how in the world is Jeff going to get saved? How in the world is Micah going to be redeemed? On what basis is Carol going to go into the kingdom of God? After any kind of human knowledge or human reckoning, human thinking, that's just it's unthinkable. How do any of these grand events occur? God in chapter 23 says, it's me. I did it. Here's what it says. Starting in verse 8. Who has planned this against Tyre? Now, the first eight verses are going to describe the downfall of Tyre and how all the other nations that traded with Tyre, because Tyre had a major seaport, and all of the great shipping organizations, the ships from Tarshish, they all traded with Tyre. And when Tyre went down, that interrupts the whole trade route into the Middle East. So many cities and many people are affected by the downfall of Tyre. And so the first eight verses talks about all the people that are weeping over the downfall of Tyre. So is this just a random event? Is this just something that happened? Or did somebody plan this despite the fact that it's going to cause hardship on people and despite the fact that people are going to be weeping over it? Who planned that? So the question is, who has planned this against Tyre? And then he describes Tyre as the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. That gives you some idea how important they are to the trade routes through the Middle East and through the Mediterranean. And yet they have fallen, yet they've been destroyed. So who planned that? Well, it's God who asked the question because it's God who wants to provide the answer. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty. What is the most often repeated sin in the Bible? Pride. It's always pride. As soon as people start thinking of themselves as wealthy and well-to-do, they start getting arrogant, they start surrounding themselves with splendor and beauty, and God will always be in opposition to that kind of human pride. And that's exactly what had happened to Tyre and Sidon. They started thinking that they were undefeatable. They started thinking nobody could get to them. They started thinking that they pretty much controlled that area of the world so the Lord of hosts has planned their destruction to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Look closely at that sentence. That says that God hates, God despises all of the 
human beings who are honored by other human beings, human beings who are worshiped by other human beings. God alone deserves worship. God alone deserves honor. God alone deserves praise. And if any human being has anything or is lifted up in any way, it is God who has accomplished that. And yet the Gentile nations who didn't know Yahweh didn't give him the credit for the honor that was bestowed on them. And as a consequence, God says, I'm going to destroy them because I hate it when humans honor other humans above me. Do you think God's changed? No. No. There is no variableness, no shadow of turning. God still to this day is in direct opposition to the pride of beauty among human beings. And he despises all the honored, all the prideful of the earth. These days, it's not hard to find somebody who has some kind of authority or political clout or even ecclesiastical authority on the planet. And then they wear that as a source of pride. And they flaunt it in order to control other people. We're seeing that everywhere in the world right now. It's good to know that God's position on it is he hates that. He is in direct opposition to that. And he holds all mankind guilty. Look at chapter 24. Behold, the Lord lays the earth to waste. He devastates it. He distorts its surface and he scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest and the servant will be like his master and the maid will be like his mistress. In other words, everybody's going to be exactly the same. He's going to level everybody. The buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. And the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns, the earth withers, the world fades and withers, and the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. Why? Because God hates exalted people on the earth. He's the only one who deserves to be honored, glorified, praised, exalted. The earth, he says, is also polluted by its inhabitants. There's everything we believe about human depravity. Isaiah saw that depravity and said that the earth is polluted by the fact that it has humans on it. The humans, the inhabitants, have polluted the earth. Why? Because they transgressed laws... And God is the lawgiver who placed those laws in place, and then they transgress them, they break them. According to John, the essence of what sin is is the transgressing of the law. And so since the inhabitants of the earth continue to transgress the law, that makes the inhabitants of the earth sinners. Not just sinners because they are the offspring of Adam, who is their federal head, and therefore they are imputed with sinfulness, but also because their activities make them guilty on a constant basis. And their hearts are desperately wicked and depraved, and that is the way that they are described over and over in the Old and New Testament. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, 
for they transgressed the law, they violated the statutes, and they broke the everlasting covenant. Last week, we talked a little bit about what this everlasting covenant might be. A covenant, apparently a conditional covenant, because human beings were able to break it. If it were unconditional, they couldn't break it. And we went back last week and we looked. Well, was it two weeks ago? We went back two weeks ago and we looked at God's promise to Noah and the eight people that were on the ark, which means he was essentially talking at that moment to all mankind. And he said that he was no longer going to destroy the earth by flood, but then he put the responsibility on them that they do not shed blood. No matter what, don't eat an animal in its blood and do not murder one another, do not shed blood. And ever since then, men have been shedding blood. And that would be a direct opposition to what God has told people to do. And that may very well be what Isaiah is referring to here when he says that they broke the everlasting covenant. What we know for sure is all mankind is guilty before God. And therefore, these passages out of Isaiah that we've been looking at for the last several weeks, where God is judging Gentile nations who don't have the advantages that Israel has, they don't have the law, they don't have the prophets, they don't have the covenants, they don't have those things, and yet God can hold them guilty because all of them, every one of them, are guilty of breaking the everlasting covenant. Every one of them is transgressing the law of God. Every one of them is violating the statutes of God. Every one of them are descendants of Adam, so that makes every one of them constantly guilty Non-stop. So when God does the unthinkable to them, they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And so God takes the time to say, who planned this? I'm going to tell you, as we look at the history of Tyre and Sidon, the destruction of Tyre and Sidon was terrible. It was awful. Thousands of people crucified on the beaches. Masses of people within the city slaughtered. And who would have planned such a thing? God says, the Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the Jewish historian Titus Flavius Josephus. You know him just by his last name. Josephus was a Hebrew, a Jewish historian, lived between 37 and 100 AD, he wrote an apologia, a defense to the Jews, which you can look at online, you can look it up, it's called Against Apion. In that particular bit of writing, he quotes a guy named Meander of Ephesus. Now the reason that Meander of Ephesus is important is that He is the historian of Tyre. He's the historian who lists the kings of Tyre. He's the one who kept the annals of Tyre. The same way that we have 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles in the Old Testament, which are the chronicles of the various kings of the northern and the southern kingdoms. Every king in the Middle East had a chronicler. And this fellow Menander 
was the historian who kept track of the kings of Tyre. Unfortunately, we have no copies of what he wrote. They've been lost to antiquity. So the only things we know from Menander are the things that Josephus quotes in his writing. He quotes from Menander, and he quotes the list of kings of Tyre. In fact, this is what he writes. He says, this Menander wrote the acts that are done both by the Greeks and the barbarians under every one of the Tyrian kings. And he has taken many pains to learn their history, the history of Tyre, and he learned it out of their own records. But then, as I said, all those records have been lost, and so what we get is a second-hand report through Josephus, and that's really the only basis we have to know the list of kings. If you go look on uh, the Internet and you say, tell me the list of the kings of Tyre, the only list they've got to go by is the one that Menander wrote up, and the only reason we know the list of Menander is because of Josephus quoting him, because everything he wrote is gone. Josephus refers to him as Menander also one who translated the Tyrian archives out of the dialect of the Phoenicians into the Greek language. He also says Menander, when he wrote his chronology and translated the archives of Tyre into the Greek language, he also writes Menander wrote the acts that were done both by the Greeks and the barbarians under every one of the Tyrian kings. He wrote that in Against Appion. So Josephus rested heavily on Menander in order to get his Middle Eastern history correct. And it's through this Menander that we know about the fall of Tyre. And we know what kingdoms were responsible for the fall of Tyre. Josephus describes the help that Hiram, the king of Tyre, provided for the building of Solomon's temple. Actually, Tyre and Sidon were seaport cities all the way back to before the Israelites getting to the land of Canaan. When they came into Canaan, they had to deal with Tyre and Sidon. And in fact, when God spells out the borders of Canaan land that the Israelites are supposed to take, the upper border is Tyre and Sidon, which they never fully conquered. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So Josephus describes the help that Hiram, the king of Tyre, provided for the building of Solomon's temple. So there's a close relationship to be had here. By the way, if you go north through Canaan land, as you go along the border, you can look at your maps in the back of the Bible, as you go along the Mediterranean border there, you'll see Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre is actually divided up into what's known as Old Tyre and New Tyre. Old Tyre is actually the city that is on the shoreline. And they're actually in an open plain. And they just got tired of being attacked by every new king in the Middle East. And that's why they went out and developed their rock kingdom out in the Mediterranean Sea so that they could finally just protect themselves. But being a rock fortress, they couldn't really grow food. They didn't really have pasture lands. And so Sidon became like their mother city. 
Sidon would create all the produce, send that out to the fortress of Tyre, and in exchange, whenever Sidon was attacked by any kind of foreign kings, Sidon would come running to the fortress and the stone kingdom would protect them. So that was their mother-child relationship. Now you need to know that that's the way their relationship was described as mother and child because here in Isaiah 23, there's going to be a direct reference to that. There was a description, according to Josephus, of Hiram's building projects in Tyre, and he quotes directly from Menander again in order to show the historicity of this Hiram that's mentioned in the Bible. In fact, there are other details about Hiram that are added, including an exchange of riddles between Solomon and Hiram. So apparently Hiram chased after wisdom the way Solomon did, and apparently they used to send riddles back and forth to each other. I find that curious. There was also a drought in Israel during the days of Elijah. You can read about that in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And that's equated by Josephus with a drought that Menander said occurred during the days of Ethbaal. That would be 878 to 847 BC. He was then king of the Tyrians. And so the more you know about Menander's history, the more you can compare it to biblical history and you can see what was going on in Tyre, which again is just at the northern border of Israel. So it looms very large and it's very important. After relating that Shalmaneser V, who was the king of the Assyrians, after relating that Shalmaneser V was responsible for the destruction of Samaria, you can read about that in 2 Kings 17, 3 to 6, Menander told us, and Josephus repeats it, this Shalmaneser, who for a long time was, people argued about whether Shalmaneser existed because the critics of the Bible are always trying to eliminate any kind of accurate history in the Bible. But it is because of this Menander that we have sure proof that Shalmaneser did exist. The same way that we have proof of the various kings of, of Tyre. When speaking of it, Menander says that the king of Tyre during this time was named Elulius. He reigned for 36 years, and he was successful in enduring a siege for five years that was started by Shalmaneser. That's going to start to explain what we're going to read in chapter 23. There is a method to my madness. I'm not just throwing out random facts to you. As you read chapter 23... You're going to need to know these details in order for it to all make sense because it's spoken in fairly poetic, prophetic language. And yet the more you know of the actual history, the more you're going to see how accurate this prophecy is. So anyway, like I said, even though we don't have any copies of his work, this Menander guy is a really important link to what we know about Tyre. Now, the name Tyre means, here's a tough one, it means rock in any of the ancient Semitic languages because the city, like I told you, consisted of two parts. The main trade center that was out on an island and then old Tyre that was half a mile away on the mainland. 
Now this Menander mentions a siege of Tyre by Shalmaneser, as I just said, right about the same time as Shalmaneser sieged against Samaria. So Sidon and Echo and Old Tyre there on the mainland, those were all Phoenician cities, were all soon reduced to rubble. But this new Tyre that was sitting on an island half a mile away from the shore held out against Shalmaneser for five years. Sargon, the next king of the Assyrians, probably finished the siege later, but interestingly, when you read the annals of Sennacherib and the Assyrians, not once does he ever mention Tyre among the cities that the Assyrian kings ever conquered. So even though they withstood a five-year siege by the Assyrians, they didn't fall. You see why I'm saying they thought they were impregnable? Mm -hmm. The greatest armies of the Middle East could not take them down. And in fact, as we read through chapter 23, we're going to come across the phrase, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were originally just kind of a nomadic people who finally settled in the area that became Babylon. So the expression here, the Chaldeans, may be a direct reference to the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, because later Nebuchadnezzar himself decided, since the Assyrians couldn't accomplish the task, that he was going to go conquer Tyre, and he was going to overtake the rock city, because if you can set yourself up as a king in the rock city, you're about as protected as you get. Nebuchadnezzar also couldn't do it. Turns out that it took Alexander the Great to finally conquer and destroy New Tyre, and he did it in a mere seven months. And you know how he did it? Well, first he conquered the inland cities, raised them to the ground, completely destroyed them, and then had his armies begin throwing all the wood and all the stone and all the brick out into the sea. And little by little over the course of the next seven months, he built a causeway out to the island so that he could then roll his giant catapults out to the end of the causeway and start throwing things over the city walls and at the same time, his uh, armies were besieging around the back of the city and breaking down the city walls. And from both sides, they finally took the city of Tyre, conquered it, destroyed it. And that's one of the most amazing feats of warfare in all of history. That actually occurred a couple hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar took a shot at it. So, when we look at chapter 23, the reason I've said all this, when we look at chapter 23 and we read about the fall of Tyre, some of it is going to sound like he's talking about Sennacherib. Some of it he's going to refer to the Chaldeans and it's going to sound like he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar going after Tyre. And then there's the complete destruction of Tyre which can only be a reference to Alexander the Great. So in this chapter, God not only predicts history in advance, 
but in the prophecy, he seems to touch on all three incursions against Tyre until Tyre is finally completely destroyed. And that's a remarkable amount of detail that God knows in advance. Sidon still exists, by the way. It's called Saida, which is the Arabic word for fishing. We're about to look at a prophecy from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says that they're going to be a place for drying out fishing nets. They're even wearing that name now. Can I tell you a little more history of Sidon and Tyre here? Are you interested in it? Yes. Because we can move on to chapter 23 if you'd prefer, but... The northern border of ancient Canaan extended all the way to Sidon. If you look at Genesis 10, 19, it says that the land that was given to Abraham originally extends all the way up to Sidon, which is past Tyre. Later, Jacob speaks about it as the boundary of Zebulun. You can read that in Genesis 49, 13. Joshua included it as part of the land that was promised to Israel. You can read that in Joshua 13, 6. Sidon was included in the inheritance of Asher on its northern boundary. You can read about that in Joshua 19, 24. But then it wasn't actually taken by Asher in the conquest of Asher. And you can read about that in Judges 1, 31 and Judges 3, 3. So it was settled from the beginning as a port city, Sidon was. And it was built on what's known as a promontory, which is really just a high point of land that juts out into a large body of water. And it had a nearby offshore island that sheltered the harbor from any storms. And 20 miles south of Sidon, in the middle of a coastal plain, there was Old Tyre, Historical and archaeological evidence indicates that both these cities were settled by the early 2nd millennium B.C. So we're talking like 2100 B.C., 2900 B.C. to make it early. So before the Israelites actually got to Canaan, those were important seaports long before the Israelites got there. Yet, while Sidon was mentioned many times during the Canaanite and early Israelite periods in the Bible, Tyre as a city is first mentioned as part of Asher's western boundary. That's Joshua 19.28. So Tyre is mentioned much later than Sidon. Specifically, it's called a fortified city in that passage. It was noted as being a significant landmark and Tyre did not appear again in the Bible until Hiram, king of Tyre, sends his cedars and his carpenters and his masons to build David's house. You can read that in 2 Samuel 5.11. Do you see how often Tyre and Sidon are mentioned in the Old Testament? They loom very large in the Bible, even though we're not as familiar with those names as some of the other names in the Middle East. So while Tyre seemed to withstand Nebuchadnezzar, it was not prepared for Alexander 250 years later, although every Phoenician city to the north, including Sidon, actually welcomed Alexander because they knew they were going to be overwhelmed. Tyre would not agree to surrender to Alexander 
without conditions. They would only surrender in a nominal way. One of the things that Alexander wanted to do was to enter the city as the majestic conquering king, and they, of course, would not allow him, which really just made him angry. Angry enough that he would tell everybody, start throwing rocks into the sea. So he was not going to be denied, and after a seven-month siege on the island city, he did what no one else had ever even considered possible. He threw the stones, the timber, the dirt, the debris from the mainland into the sea. He constructed a causeway out into the Mediterranean. Now, by the way, if you look at a current map, you can find a peninsula that goes out to the rock island that used to be an independent rock island called Tyre. Tyre still sits out there as a fishing village, but it's part of a peninsula now because over the last few thousand years, as the waters have carried more silt and debris, it has continued to build up on this causeway that originally Alexander only made wide enough to get a couple of his catapults out there. But it's a, it's a major peninsula now. It's said that Alexander was so enraged by the Tyrians' defense of their city and the loss of his men that he actually destroyed half the city. 8,000 Tyrian civilians were massacred after the city fell. Alexander granted pardon to all those who had sought sanctuary in the temple because he wanted them to sacrifice to him in the temple. But 30,000 residents and foreigners, mainly women and children, were then sold into slavery, not to count the thousands that were crucified on the beaches. Now, Ezekiel refers to this very event. And Ezekiel also talks about it long before it actually happened. While also mentioning that God would send Nebuchadnezzar against the city. You can read that in Ezekiel 26.7. He spoke of the Lord's promise to destroy Tyre, to scrape her dust from her, to make her smooth like the top of a rock and a good place for spreading out the nets to dry. You can read that in Ezekiel 26.4 and 14. Ezekiel also pointed out that Tyre's worldwide trade would cease with this event and that is the very theme of Isaiah 23. So God has adequate witness on this one. I mean, it seemed unthinkable, but he's got two of his prophetic witnesses declaring that this is going to happen. So when it did happen, when the seemingly unthinkable actually did occur, it was like God saying, see, I told you. And here in Isaiah, he takes credit for it and says, who did it? I did it. The Lord of hosts did it. Illustrating Ezekiel's description of Tyre's destruction, there is a, a very current historian, uh, Nina, J-I-D-E-J-I-A-N. Dejejian? I do not know. But in 1996, she wrote a book called Sidon Through the Ages. And in it, she noted that over the past three centuries, Tyre has served as a sort of quarry for the whole rest of the Mediterranean coast. And stones from Tyre have now been found as far away as Beirut, which is 40 miles north, 
And as far south as Akko, which is 25 miles south in Israel, so exactly what Ezekiel predicted, that they were going to scrape it down to the stone, has actually come true. And even as recent as 1996, there is still testimony to the truth of God's prophecy and how it has played out in human history. And that, by the way, whether you know it or not, is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely astounding. Ezekiel also prophesied of God's judgment against Sidon in Ezekiel 28, 20 to 24. God promised pestilence and blood in her streets and death by the sword. And Sidon incurred the wrath of the Persian king Artaxerxes, who beat the city into submission. And this may have been the very event that Ezekiel described, but even if it wasn't, later on under Alexander, all of it occurred. Then you get into the New Testament. You thought I was done, didn't you? No, no. At some point, we're actually going to read the text. I'm still introducing. They actually did then, Sidon and Tyre, especially old Tyre, they were so beaten down that they had to give way to Alexander and to Greece and their rule. And so New Testament Tyre and Sidon became prosperous Roman port cities. Early in Jesus' ministry, people from Sidon and Tyre heard about the things that he did, and they came to see him. You can read about that in Mark 3.8. And he also healed them, according to Luke 6.17. Later in his ministry, Jesus visited the region of Sidon and Tyre. There he healed a Syrophoenician woman, actually healed her daughter. You can read about that in Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Mark also recounts it in Mark 7, 24 to 31. That was the same area where God sent Elijah when the widow fed him. You read about that in 1 Kings 17, 9. Elijah's visit was to the port city of Zarephath, almost midway between Tyre and Sidon. So it was an area that was very well known among the Israelites. Not only did Elijah the prophet go up there, but Jesus himself went up there and did miracles up there. And in fact, Jesus pronounced judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida, suggesting that if the people of the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon had experienced what Chorazin and Bethsaida did, that they would have long ago repented in sackcloth and ashes. You can read about that in Matthew eleven twenty-one to 24. The inhabitants offended Herod Agrippa I and came to visit him at Jerusalem. And while both were significant Roman cities on the eastern Mediterranean, their leaders felt that they needed to keep the favor of King Herod. And it's while they were there visiting that Herod got all lifted up in his own pride, and God killed him. You can read about that in Acts 12, 20 to 23. Sound familiar, Micah? When Paul returned to Palestine from his third missionary journey, he sailed into Tyre, because Tyre was a port city. And there he met with a group of disciples, and he spent seven days there with them. That's Acts 21, 3 to 7. After his arrest in Jerusalem and his imprisonment in Caesarea, Paul was taken as a prisoner to Rome. From Caesarea, his ship stopped at Sidon, and Paul was allowed to go meet with a group of disciples in that city. That's Acts 27, 3. 
In the early days of the Roman Empire, Sidon even had enough autonomy to have its own senate and to also mint its own coins. Meanwhile, Tyre also recovered from Alexander's devastation. In 126 BC, it was now a peninsula, as it is today, that extended out into the Mediterranean, and so it became a Roman province, and later it became the capital of Rome's Syro-Phoenician province. The site of the ancient mainland city, and this is interesting, became a large, ornate Roman necropolis. Do you know what a necropolis is? City of the dead. Yeah, it's a giant graveyard. It became a large, ornate cemetery where the Romans could bury people. So talk about a long way down. They went from one of the leading port cities all the way down to being the place of the dead, exactly like Ezekiel predicted. Based on all that, I think we can have a great deal of confidence as we're reading through Isaiah 23, and now I don't have to go too deeply into the details because you kind of know the details, but you can read the colorful prophetic language, and not only do you know that it actually came true in history, in time, and in reality, but it came true very physically, very genuinely, and so you have to read this prophecy, even though the language, like I said, is a tad poetic, you have to also read it very literally, because it very literally actually happened, and very literally actually came true, which is why I continue to argue that the book of Isaiah needs to be read literally. That was all introduction. Those last 53 minutes do not count against my time. And it's cold outside, and I have nowhere to be. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish. You see this phrase, ships of Tarshish, many times in the Old Testament. What it appears to be is a Hebraism referring to trade ships that came from the furthest distance. Tarshish is oftentimes referred to as being the furthest distant trade route, the city that's the furthest away that they trade with. Now, some people have speculated that that would have been on the southern tip of Spain. Some have also said that it would have been the islands of the sea. Some have said that it would have been the Tin Islands, which we later know as England. And so this is a reference to the distant areas that came to trade at Tyre. That's how important Tyre was. An oracle concerning Tyre, cry, wail, be sad, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. That happened. The harbor was closed down and there wasn't a house standing. It was utterly destroyed. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus as they're coming from distant areas and they get as far as Cyprus, they're already hearing the report that Tyre is destroyed. So they're sad before they get there. They're already hearing the news. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers cross the sea and were on many waters. In other words, the phrase be silent there 
is equal to mourning, being, being so upset, being so flabbergasted, being so outraged by what's happening. All you can do is just sit down, hold your tongue, and, and marvel at what has happened. And so the inhabitants of the coastland, like Sidon, the other ports that are part of that trade route, he says, just sit down and be amazed at it. And your messengers crossed the sea, and they were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, so the grain that would come up from Egypt would come up along the Nile and would come trade there. They would come to the ports of Tyre and Sidon. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river, was her revenue. And she was the market of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks. The stronghold of the sea says, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men or reared virgins. I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that the mother-child relationship between Tyre and Sidon was very important. So important and so well known that part of the prophecy includes Sidon saying, I have no child. Now my child is gone. I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. I have no children. Verse 5, when the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish, the most distant areas of your trading. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city? In other words, is this your... Your city full of finery? Is this your city that's impregnable? This is the place that brought you so much joy, so much trade, so much wealth. Is this your jubilant city? Whose origin is from antiquity? Like I said, they predate Israel and Canaan. Whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Who has planned this against Tyre? The bestower of crowns whose merchants were princes, whose traders were honored of the earth. The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more restraint. That is a tough one to interpret, and I read several, several different, not seven different, I read several different commentaries to try to understand that one phrase. And the best interpretation I found of it is that Tarshish was so dependent on trade with Tyre. And the main thing that Tarshish was known for was its trade in silver, which means that the residents, the daughters of Tarshish, worked in the mines. And it was cruel. It was harsh work. It was slavery type of work. But now, because of the fall of Tyre, there's a sudden drop in demand for silver. There's no way to port it out to all the different places that might be looking for it. And as a result, the daughters of Tarshish no longer have that slavery on them. That restraint is taken off them. So it's like a reprieve from having to work in the silver mines. He, Tarshish, 
He, God, has stretched his hand out over the sea. He has made the kingdoms to tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. Now, that area of Canaan, like I said, originally was promised to the tribes of Israel all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, including Tyre all the way up to Sidon. And so God now has given a command about the strongholds of Canaan. And certainly Tyre would be one of the major strongholds, one of the fortified cities of Canaan. But the Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. And he has said, you shall exalt no more, O crushed virgin of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you'll find no rest. In other words, as Sidon is falling under siege, anybody who could get out, and remember it's a port city, they've got access to boats. If they get in their boats and go directly across the sea, they're going to be in Cyprus. So he says, naturally, you're going to flee to Cyprus, but you can't run away from me. Even in Cyprus, they're not going to be any help to you. They're not going to give you any rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. Okay, now we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people which was not. Remember I told you earlier, the Chaldeans were originally kind of a nomadic people, nomadic tribal people who finally settled into a city and built up Babylon. But once upon a time, they weren't a people, and then they became this great people. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. They stripped its palaces. They made it a ruin. So even among the Chaldeans, even among Babylon, as you know from previous lessons, Assyria conquered Babylon for a while. So Assyria is just conquering, conquering, conquering across the Middle East. So then wail, cry, O ships of Tarshish. For your stronghold is destroyed. Now it will come about in that day that Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of a king. And at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of a harlot. So let me see if I can explain this before we read it. From what I just showed you, Tyre was destroyed during the Old Testament period. And it remained destroyed for a good period of time. But by the time you read in the New Testament and Jesus walks on the planet, he goes to Tyre and Sidon. And as I told you, eventually Tyre became a capital of the province up there. So eventually they were returned to some amount of trading ability. They still were a port, even though they were a peninsula. Sidon again was allowed to take ships in, and they became part of the Roman governance over the Middle East. God sees that as them returning to their previous harlotry because they were doing trade with all the godless nations. So even though God promises them here, predicts that he's going to destroy them and they're going to lay destroyed for 70 years, then they're going to be returned, but their return is not a good thing. Instead, they're returning to their harlotry. And so... Isaiah says, 
At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. So take your harp, walk about the city, O forgotten harlot, pluck the strings skillfully, sing many songs, so that you may be remembered. You're going to be restored again. You're going to want to let people know that you're restored again. But once they know you're restored, and once you start trading with them, all you're doing is committing harlotry with them because you are doing the same kind of trading with godless Gentile nations that you've always done. Here's what he says. Verse 17. And it will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre and she will go back to her harlot's wages and she will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. There is not a specific historic event outside of looking at the fact that it was the wealth of Tyre that provided ultimately for the temple of the Lord. It is the wealth of Tyre that eventually traded with Canaan, even during the times that Jesus was on the planet. But this also, considering the way this chapter is laid out, where it progresses historically, and you go through the Assyrians, and you go through the Chaldeans, and you reach the point of Alexander the Great, that this last verse here may also be reaching out into the distant future, into the eschatological future, and saying that ultimately all the good that God has provided to Tyre and Sidon is not going to be for their own gain, for their own good, but for the good of the people of God. Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded by them, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. Perhaps we just have to wait and see how it all plays out. And if ultimately the kingdom, here we are talking about the kingdom again, the kingdom that is going to have Jesus sitting on the throne ruling from Jerusalem, it says that all the surrounding Gentile nations are all going to flow to Jerusalem. That would include Tyre and Sidon, which are going to flow to Jerusalem and bring their sacrifice, bring their finery, bring their wealth to the kingdom in Jerusalem. Perhaps that will be the full satisfaction of verse 18. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste. He devastates it. He distorts its surface. He scatters its inhabitants. That's where we will start next week. Now, I know that that was a whole lot of information. And I know that was a bunch of Middle Eastern history. And I tried to pare it down to just the essential elements. I found and I have so much information so much detail. But I just wanted to concentrate on the things that would hopefully enlighten what we read here in Isaiah 23. What you need to leave here with is knowing that the God that you worship, the God of the Bible, is the same God who did this. The same God who did the seemingly impossible, who took down Babylon, who took down the Assyrians, who took down Tyre, 
and who declared every time that he was the one who was doing it because he's the only one who deserves to be worshipped. And he hates the pride of human beings that get lifted up. Which is why when the Assyrians were used in order to punish Israel, that God then punished the Assyrians for the pride of heart, the haughtiness with which they attacked Israel. It always comes back to pride. And the God who is ultimately going to destroy the whole world, as we're going to read in the next chapter, is the same God who takes down kingdoms, raises up kingdoms, and is in charge of human history. And a God who can predict way in advance that he's going to use Gentile enemies and make them fight against themselves to take down the prideful, arrogant cities that he finds to be too haughty, a God who's in that kind of control of history can take care of you. He's got you in his hand. And if that's the God that loves you, you're in good shape. Amen. You got it? Yes, sir. Any questions about that? How long was the causeway uh, that Alexander that you... About a kilometer is what the oldest books say. A kilometer is actually six-tenths of a mile. So I kept referring to it as about a half a mile out into the sea. So the causeway went right up to a couple hundred feet from the island so that the catapults could reach the city and get over the walls. But then it was so close to the island that the water was shallow enough that the armies could just march across, surround the city, breach the walls, take the city down from several angles all at once. It was quite a bit of genius warfare on Alexander's part. It's quite a landfill. It's just fascinating to look at, to know that, that it is now kind of a landfill. It has become a true peninsula, but it was originally just a causeway to go not only destroy the city, but fulfill the word of God. And when you go look at that geographic peninsula in the Mediterranean Sea to this very day, it stands there as a testimony to the word of God. The word of God said it was going to happen. By all human estimation, it was impossible. And then it happened. And the evidence that it happened is still on the planet today. And that's pretty remarkable. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. 